Don't get scared. I got all these books up here, but or I could say, ah, strap, strap it in because we might be here for a while, but that's not the case. Let me turn this thing on. Even though I've been told I don't need a microphone, can you still hear me without this thing on? Yeah. Well, I'll turn it on anyway. There we go. Yeah, they couldn't hear me. Al couldn't hear me, I guess, or somebody couldn't hear me. Jack once again said, hey, take your time, brother, when you get up there. So let's talk about these anniversaries. And that might be able to tie that into to this morning's message. And yeah, I got an iPad up here. Don't judge me. Actually, it, uh, also Tim and Allie had an anniversary on August the 2nd. It was their fourth. So, might seem, four years might seem like a long time to them, but then you turn Bob and Mary have been married 56. Harris and Shirley? 61. Holy snikes. 61 years. And then uh, Ken and Nancy. Nancy's out, so you have to answer. 46, okay. 63 for Charlie and the Hoosier. So, Charlie and the Hoosier, 63. Yeah. Well, it's been 38 for me, Charlie. I was going to say, that seemed like a long time to me. Can Angie hear this in the nursery, John? Okay. It is just yesterday, honey, if you can hear this. 38 years just flown by. But uh, this morning's message is titled, which uh, Janet already asked Angie what the title, because Alan wanted to know what my title and passage was. I texted you the title two weeks ago, Al, by the way. But, but it's not relative is the title of this morning's message, and for part of it will be in John 17, he always wants a, a, a passage, but we'll be once again maybe here and there and, and other places, but it's not relative. <clears throat> and before we find out what the it is, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the term relative, obviously as a noun, your relative would be like, Allie is my daughter, so she's my relative, obviously, but uh, we're talking about the adjective relative. If you look it up, if you Google it or look at Webster's or whatever, relative, as an adjective, it's considered in relation or proportion to something else. Webster's divines, it says, something dependent upon external conditions for its specific nature, size, etc. The first definition I Googled, I don't remember what, if that was dictionary.com, after it said, considered in relation or proportion to something else, semicolon, not absolute. So remember that. In Webster's, it says something dependent upon external conditions for its size, 
or for its specific nature, size, etc. And then in parentheses it says opposed to absolute. So you have relative and you have absolute. This morning's message is it's not relative. Of course, then you say, well, what's absolute? Absolute as an adjective. There's several definitions given. First one, it says it's free from imperfection, it's complete, it's perfect. The second one, not mixed or adulterated, it's pure. The third one, complete or outright. Fourth, free from restriction or limitation, not limited in any way. Fifth one, unrestrained or unlimited. Sixth, viewed independently, not comparative or relative. And the seventh one, positive or certain. So those are all definitions of absolute. So you have the title, it's not relative, and obviously in relative's definition it said it's not absolute or it's opposed to absolute, and then absolute is not relative. So they're just sort of, we'll call them opposites, but it's not relative. So what's not relative? What's not relative? I said we we're going to be in John 17, but let's first turn to John 18. And if you notice, I've also brought this, the book up here, The Unseen Realm. And I'm reading through it for the second or third time, so I'm about a third of the way through it. Uh, Missed all of Mark's Wednesday night uh, teachings, not just, I'm sure he's not just teaching on the book, but I'm, I'm, I've enjoyed a decade long of being a co-teacher of Mark, so I know it's very informative. I'm not, a I'm not retired yet, which Mark and Don and everybody else in here, but Jimmy reminds me that I'm not retired yet. So oftentimes I get home from the office late during the week, so I haven't made it over for any of the Wednesday night sessions. But John 18, it's not relative. Remember that. Go to verse 36. And if you'll, you'll be familiar with this. <clears throat> this is Pilate before, I mean Jesus before Pilate in John 18. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, or would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Remember that. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, verse 38, What is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Get that, that question that Pilate asked him in verse 38. Because remember, Jesus finished verse 37 saying he came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate asked him, what is truth? And in John's gospel, it's the only gospel account of Jesus before Pilate that even records that question. If you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't, they don't record that question where Pilate asked him, what is truth? And John didn't pin down a response. So I don't know if Jesus was like, our Lord and Savior is like, that doesn't even dignify a reply to Pilate because he didn't give one here, at least in, in the gospel account of John. But if you go back to chapter 17 of John, where I said would be one of the texts, and uh, <clears throat> just start in verse 14. Remember that question. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true truth as you sent them as you sent me into the world so have I sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth I do not ask for these only but also for those who believe in me through their word that they all may be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It goes on, talks about the church being as one. What is truth? And then Jesus Christ says, thy word is truth. Remember the title is, it's not relative. Well, what's not relative? Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. But see, relativism has creeped into the church these days. Not just society. It's creeped into the church these days. Angie and I were going into Wally World. That's Walmart, by the way. Years, years back, getting some groceries. And a, uh, a lady was walking out that we'd gone to church with uh, at our previous church, but they had left that church and were going to a different church. And her and her husband is, uh, was back at Tennessee Temple University when I was there eons ago. And uh, so Angie stopped. We, well, we both stopped, but Angie, Angie was, hey, how you doing? Da, da, da. You know, she was walking out, and it was raining at the time. And then her husband pulled up in the car to pick her up so she wouldn't have to walk out in the parking lot. So I turned around and waved at him. And uh, then we came back and said, uh, where are you going? To? Angie said, where are you going to church now? And it was uh, one of the flavors of Presbyterianism. 
And <clears throat> she said, well, how do you like the church? And she goes, oh, we're really enjoying it. The pastor just gets up and preaches and lets us decide what's truth for us. And then she goes, well, I got to go. And she went to the car, and we waved bye to her and her husband. And I turned around with Angie as we were walking in, and I said, that's a dangerous statement. That's a dangerous statement. And just a couple of years before that, she had come to me after a service, probably was on a Wednesday evening or sometime, and asked me to pray for her husband because he was uh, deciding he wanted to be, become more of an agnostic or something. And I guess uh, he had st started coming to church rather infrequently and had obviously fallen away from the Lord and uh, being a Christ follower. And uh, obviously he'd gone and talked to, talked to this about some of the people on staff, but when they were talking to them on staff, they said, well, if he's feeling that way, he was probably never really ever saved in the first place. So she obviously didn't, didn't like that response. <laughs> so then she caught uh, an old, I wouldn't call us bud buddies or friends, we were never really super close, but I mean an old school acquaintance, somebody she'd known for years, and she'd probably heard about that Sunday school class that I was involved with over there. So I just, I told her I'd pray for her husband that uh, he was putting himself in a dangerous position of not, uh, you know, not being approved at the judgment seat of Christ. And I was talking about the separation of the soul and spirit. And, the, and of course, all that was going like, pew. And she started looking at me sort of, you know, funny, like I was a, coming from a cult or something, like Jerry was talking about in Sunday school, but uh, that was just a couple of years later, they had left the church and gone and found a church, I guess, where he felt comfortable going in there, because the pastor just preached and let you decide what was truth for you. Relativism. But it's not just in liberal churches, you know, I mean, it's in what quote-unquote evangelical churches. Because any time we put filters, filters on things, and we filter the Word of God through our filters, we're really making it relative. Because His Word is truth. And the written Word and the living Word are one and the same. So Pilate, if he'd have known that the living word was standing right, he was, that was who he was asking, he could have said, who is truth, not what is truth. But the truth was standing right in front of him. So if you'll permit me, I will just read just the opening part of this book on uh, the unseen realm by Michael Heiser. I enjoy reading in my... Uh, one of my older brothers, Roland, when I graduated from high school, got me J. Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come, which is about a four. I read that the summer after my senior year in high school. But I was reading it through filters of other stuff I'd read before. And I've, I've shared this with the church before. What brought me ripe for the fruit, for the picking to Allen years ago in 96, uh, was that conundrum of the Hebrews warning passages and what I'd always been taught. If 
about professors and possessors and all that stuff, and uh, that those people in the morning passage that fell away were never really saved in the first place, and and I just couldn't wrap my head around that until uh, you know we were talking about it in '96 after a Wednesday night service, and then Alan said, "I got a book you need to read." So I read Reign of the Servant Kings by Dillo, and it removed one of my filters. Right? Then I came to Alan and said, hey, you got any more writing of this nature? And he'd brought me uh, the study of Scripture by Arnon Chitwood. And I read through that, and that removed another of my filters that I'd filtered all my studies through before. Or if you've ever, who ever in here has ever had somebody come up to them and you're talking to them and they're struggling with something in their life? And I said, well, I know what the, that's what the Bible says, but, right? I know that's what the Bible says. I know what that, that's what that verse says, but they're throwing up a filter and they're straining it out into relativism. But that doesn't apply to me somehow. Right? Michael Heiser's The Unseen Realm, and I'm not just putting him, he doesn't need my help pushing the book or whatever. And if <clears throat> the introduction to this thing, it says uh, reading your Bible again for the first time. And I'll try to read through this pretty quick. I'm fairly quick of it, and we might skip around a little bit. Let's just skip over to the rules of engagement, what he calls chapter 2 on page 14. It says, I've always been interested in anything old and weird. I was good at school, too. When I became a Christian in high school, I felt like I'd been born for for Bible study. I know that level of interest in the Bible wasn't normal for a teenager. It was a bit of an obsession. I spent hours studying the Bible as well as theology books. I took commentaries to study hall. Since there was no 12-step program for my addiction, I went to Bible college defeated. And then after that, it was off to seminary. I wanted to be a biblical studies professor, so the next step was graduate school, where I finally focused on the Hebrew Bible and lots of dead ancient languages. I found biblical nerdvana, at least until that Sunday morning when I saw Psalm 82 without English camouflage or filtering. Looking back, I can explain all my study, education, and learning before and after my Psalm 82 moment using two metaphors, a filter and a mosaic. We're just focused on the filter this morning. Filtering the text, as he calls it. Filters are used to eliminate things in order to achieve a desired result. We use them in cooking and other things. Cars have oil filters on them. When I was a kid, mom used to buy, you know, we used to get, we didn't have a lot of pop at the house. That's Coke for people in the South. She didn't keep a lot of pop at the house, but we had Kool-Aid and we'd have uh, orange juice. And I used to drink a lot of orange juice, but she always bought the pulp orange juice, which I, as a younger guy, I didn't like the pulp. Now I can drink it. It's not a big deal, but. So whenever I was pouring a glass of orange juice for myself, I'd get out one of mom's strainers and would pour it into my glass through a strainer and it would strain out all that pulp 
So then when I got to drink was what I wanted to drink because I had strained out the unwanted stuff, right? Filtering or a strainer. So he says, we use them in cooking and unwanted elements are dread, strained, or discarded. When used in our cars, they pre prevent particles from interfering with performance. When we use them in an email, they weed out or whom we don't want to, to read that email. What's left is what we use, what contributes to our meal, our engine, or our sanity. Most of my education was conducted in this way using filters and wasn't all of ours. It was no sinister plot, it just was what it was. The content I learned was filtered through certain presumptions and traditions that ordered the material for me that put it into a system that made sense to my modern mind. Verses that didn't quite work with my tradition were called problem passages that were either filtered out or consigned to the periphery of unimportance. I understand that a lot of well-meaning Bible students, pastors, and professors don't look at how they approach the Bible that way. I know I didn't, but it's what happens. We view the Bible through the lens of what we know and what's familiar. Psalm 82 broke my filter. And, and pa uh, Pastor Allen has had messages on Psalm 82 here in the last couple of months. More importantly, it alerted me to the fact that I had been using a filter. Our traditions, however honorable, are not intrinsic to the Bible. You get that? Our traditions, however honorable, are not intrinsic to the Bible. They are systems we invent to organize the Bible. They are artificial. They are filters. Once I'd been awake to this, it struck me as faithless to use a filter. But throwing away my filters cost me the systems with which I'd ordered scripture and doctrine in my mind. I was left with lots of fragments. It didn't feel like it at the time, but that was the best thing that could have happened to me. And then he talks about the mosaic. Let's get back to the obstacles and protocols to building this mosaic, as, as, as Heiser calls it. We'll skip to the obstacles and protocols. Number one, one of the first obstacles, we've been trained to think that the history of Christianity is the true context of the Bible. Like we say, well, Augustine said that, does everybody know who Augustine was? St. Augustine, right? Or John Calvin in his thesis said, you know, the tulip theory, John Calvin, T-U-L-I-P, Calvinism. Or the Church of God or Church of Christ, they would talk more about uh, Arminianism, you know. Or Joseph Arminius said, but we've been trained to think that the history of Christianity is the true context of the Bible. Number two, we've been desensitized to the vitality and theological importance of the unseen world. 
I'll read a little bit more about that. Let's get back to number one, that context of the Bible. Building built on the history of Christianity or what we learned in seminary, right? Or what we were taught in Bible college or seminary. Uh, obviously, uh, Dale Carter and Alan Robinson started the uh, Berean Bible class over at Grace Baptist years ago. And then when Alan was called over here to take the position of pastor, then... Uh, uh, Dale asked Mark and myself, and then later on for about a year, Don Burton, we were tri-teachers, and then it went back the last seven or eight years, uh, six or seven years to Mark and myself. Uh, and we wondered how long we were going to last over there. But long story short, uh, at, at there towards the end, uh, the pastor and uh, called Mark and myself in on a Saturday morning to the Spanish Inquisition. And uh, <clears throat> so we sat down at the table with the uh, pastor and the as associate pastor. And after the little pleasantries in the uh, beginning of the thing, the pastor's wife, who'd also gone through Dallas Seminary, actually came, they came back-to-back -back Sundays, and it was in March 2 Sunday rotation, uh, which he handled eloquently, having him sitting in there. I probably would have handled it differently, so the Lord knew to... Uh, the, the pastor's wife came the first Sunday, and then pastor came the second Sunday. And then it wasn't long after that that they called us in to the uh, office. And uh, so when the pastor, after all the introductory stuff, he said, uh, well, he goes, I'll have to say, I've never... This was... A, I, I'm trying to quote it verbatim, but uh, I've never sat in a Sunday school class that had a, lessons that were quite as in-depth and whatever as you guys' class was. But then he, uh, after that, he got off on the something about Dillo's book, which we didn't have a class on Dillo's book. You know what I'm saying? I read Dillo's book in 96, and it removed one of my filters. We didn't have the Brian Bible class, Sunday school class, and just open up and go through Dillo's book. But he brought up Dillo's book, and Dillo's was a Dallas, Dillo was a Dallas grad also. But anyway, he said uh, there's a lot of uh, gray areas in eschatology and other thoughts in Christendom, and he started bringing up like pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib which that's not a big gray area for me, but uh, and he's talking about uh, baptism and all that type and sprinkling, and that's not a gray area for me either. Right? But he said those are nothing that we want to break fellowship over. But he said, but in this, this area of the teaching that you guys are doing in your class, he said, that, and I even called my mentor, my, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, and ask him about it, and he, at that, that point, at the teaching that we were teaching in the class, that's where we break fellowship. Boom. So he didn't say, that was the most in-depth, deep study I've ever been in in Sunday school, so let's open up the Word of God and go through this teaching you guys are doing. What he said was, that was the most in-depth, deep Sunday school class study I've ever set in on. 
But to make a determination on whether your class is going to continue, I called a professor at Dallas Cemetery and asked him what he thought about There's the filter, right? It's not what this book said about it. It's what his professor, favorite professor and mentor at Dallas Theological Seminary thought about it. And he said, you got to stop it. You got to stop it. So if we'd have been teaching that, we might have think that sprinkling was the proper form of baptism, <laughs> I guess. Or if we'd have been teaching that we thought about a, that the post-trib rapture theory was okay, or a mid-trib rapture theory was okay, I guess that we wouldn't have had to break fellowship over that, but because we were teaching the kingdom truths, boom, that had to stop. Filters. Running everything through a filter. Now, at question two, it says, we've been desensitized to the vitality and theological importance of the unseen world. He says, modern Christianity suffers from two serious shortcomings when it comes to the supernatural world. First, many Christians claim to believe in the supernatural, but think and live like skeptics. We find talk of the supernatural world uncomfortable. This is typical of denominations and evangelical congregations outside the charismatic movement. In other words, those from a background like the one he grew up in, the one I grew up in, probably the ones that most of y'all grew up in, outside the charismatic world. He goes, there are two basic reasons why non-charismatics tend to close the door on the supernatural world. One is their suspicion that charismatic practices are detached from sound exegesis of Scripture. As a biblical scholar, it's easy for me to agree with that suspicion but over time, it has widely degenerated into a closed-minded overreaction that is itself detached from the worldview of the biblical writers. The guys that penned this book through inspiration by the Holy Spirit. The other reason is less self-congratulatory. The believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism. A modern worldview that would be foreign to the biblical writers. Traditional Christian teaching has for centuries kept the unseen world at arm's length. We believe in the Godhead because there's no point to Christianity without it. The rest of the unseen world is handled with a whisper or a chuckle. The second serious shortcoming is evident within the charismatic movement itself. It's the elevation of experience over Scripture. Experience over Scripture. And there's a charismatic church at the old, uh, used to be a sporting goods store over there at Lee Highway near the airport road exit, and now it's some uh, charismatic church. And right there, their poster on the side with the husband and wife co-pastors. It has the name of the church, and it says, can't be explained, well, they may have changed it now, but for... A couple of years they had that on the side of the building. Can't be explained, only experienced. Right? Can't be explained, it can only be experienced. Experience over Scripture. 
While that movement is predisposed to embrace the idea of an animate spiritual world, its conception of that world is framed largely by experience and an idiosyncratic reading of the book of Acts. When you say that, I, I, I was in sales before I took a branch management job for years in the same industry, this construction equipment rental industry. And so I, most of South, Southeast Tennessee has been part of my territory in North Georgia, sometime in North Alabama. And I was driving up through Saudi Daisy years ago and right on front of one of their Church of Gods in, in the Saudi Daisy area, it said, such and such Church of God is a Book of Acts church. That was their call thing on the, on the sign out front. So basically, I say all that to say we run things through filters. But filters are really a way of almost relativism, you know, because the script, God in those verses in John talks about us being one, right? Remember, even in Ephesians 4, 5, it says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But if you uh, do, a, I don't think it was a Barner study, but I Googled something about denominations, Christian denominations, and this one study said there's about 48,000 Christian denominations worldwide. And that was in 2012. They said by 2020-something, there would be 56,000 Christian denominations. Or what they termed Christian denominations. And I jokingly said earlier that that couple had left uh, Grace Baptist and gone to one of the flavors of Presbyterianism, but that's because you got umpteen different kinds of Baptist churches, right? You got umpteen different kinds of Presbyterian churches. Is that what the scriptures are calling for? <laughs> Remember the verses there in John 17? Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Go to John 8, 
This is a familiar passage also. Start verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who is the truth? Remember, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And like I said earlier, he could have easily said, who is truth? But he didn't know him because he was standing right in front of him. Did you catch that? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Of course, a lot of the ifs in Scripture, the evangelical church has thrown up a filter there. And they talk about first-class conditions. Has anybody heard that term? If should really mean since in the Greek. Because a lot of, most Greek scholars say that first-class conditions, the if should be since. So are we supposed to go like most Greek scholars? or <laughs> You throw up a filter. So what they're doing, basically, is they take all the conditional phrases out of the Scriptures. They say, well, that if there is a first-class condition, so it really should say since. And they just do away with all the conditional phrases in the New Testament about discipleship and who are truly his disciples, like that verse right there. As he was saying these things, many believed in him, verse 30. So verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So if you take away all the filters and don't change stuff around or run it through a strainer so you don't have to drink the pulp, right, like my orange juice. If you don't abide in his word, then would you be his disciple? No. Take away the filters. Just like Jerry had said in Sunday school when you try to share these uh, kingdom truths with people, and we've had people that would pop in and visit the Sunday school class, and then they'd, some of them would come back two or three times, some of them would come once, <laughs> and say, those guys are... Right? I've never heard that before. But you put up all the filters. You got all the filters. You're using the strainer. You run everything through a strainer until you can stomach it, right? 
went through a strainer. Let's go to Ephesians 4. We pulled out that one verse. But Ephesians chapter 4. Start in verse 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one, and that is articular, just as you were called to the, the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse 5. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Go back to that verse 4. And that's why I brought this so I can cheat and go to uh, the Blue Letter Bible thing. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope pretty narrows it down, of your calling. And that singular, your calling, is singular. So the one hope of your calling, it's a singular thing. It's your calling, it's my calling. The one, and what is the believer's hope? Not going to heaven, as we've known this, this church, right? So when he was saying, walk worthy of your calling, he said, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope. That is that hope of ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in that coming kingdom. That thousand year reign. That's the hope of the believer. We don't hope for what we already have, right? I don't have to hope that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I don't hope that I'm going to get raptured out of here when the rapture occurred. I know that's going to happen. My hope is that I will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant at the judgment seat of Christ, Enter into my rest. And I'll get that abundant entrance, as Peter calls it. But take off the filters. When I read Dillo's book, like I said, it removed one of my filters. Then I said, hey, Hebrews isn't that hard to understand. Right? Right? You don't get man involved in throwing all these filters on it and everything. Hebrews is not that hard a book to understand if you take away all the filters. 
Then I read a few of Arlen's books and it removed filters. Same thing when Alan gave me a copy of The Unseen Realm. It removed some more filters. Actually, Mark and I and the Brands had started delving into the Unseen Realm years ago over there. I can't remember if we, I think we had a couple coming when we were showing some of those videos at one time. They were probably thinking, what's going on in this class? Pam was over there a lot too, so she knows what I'm talking about. But yes, that removes some of the filters. Don't put up the filters. We always talk about context, you know, in the evangelical church. But then we, filters are really takes things out of context. Like when I've talked to people about this you know, before, friends or whatever, they'll say, uh, absent, you know, the scripture, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I said, well, don't, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of the saints? They said, well, absolutely, that's one of the doctrines of the... I said, well, okay, then when you're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have a body, and then there's going to be a separation made. And those that are approved, that are going to get, enter into his rest, will receive their glorified body. Those who are unapproved or disapproved won't get that spiritual glorified body till the end of the messianic kingdom. Or they throw up the verse about, uh, in the other epistle, where so shall you always be with the Lord. When it's talking about those who got died and gone on in the epistle. But if you read that whole epistle, he's talking about how there have been overcomers, and they've been overcoming and all that. But see, we take that one verse out of context and say, all believers will always be with the Lord in his presence, you know. And you take it out of context because you run it through a filter of what you've been taught at a seminary or a Bible college or, or whatever when that whole epistle is talking about how they overcome. And they wanted him to overcome, just do that more and more, keep overcoming more and more. And then he said he didn't want him to be afraid about some of the teachings about the, res, you know, it had already taken place and all that. And that we wouldn't proceed those that have fell asleep or whatever, da 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 da. And then so shall you always be the Lord. And they just take that one verse out, try to use it as a trump card when I talk to him about the kingdom truths. Take it out of context, run it through a strainer. Thy word is truth, truth is absolute. So take away all the filters and. We also, in evangelical churches, say the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. But then we still put all the filters in there of some, somebody else's commentary, right? We throw all the filters in there, run it through a strainer till it comes out to what we can ingest and stomach. So I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful for his word. His word is truth. The Holy Spirit was given to us to guide us into all truth. And truth is absolute. It's not relative. So don't run it through a filter. Don't run it through a strainer. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come here 
and fellowship with these other believers of the flock that we call Community Baptist Church. We thank you for your, their, your word, and we pray that we would be in your word and abide in your word on a daily basis, and we'll thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.